Hey, welcome to Saturday Night School. I noticed something earlier. I drove by some cops, and I saw a small cop car. I saw a sedan, and it got me thinking, because you never see those around here anymore. You don't see sedan cop cars. You only see SUV cop cars these days. I don't know what it's like in urban metro areas, but at least in medium cities, towns, suburbs, you tend to see more SUV cops than not, which seems like a giant waste. You know, people talk about defunding the police, and you never hear them mention, you know, make the police cut costs on these SUVs. Why are they driving SUVs? Those things are gas guzzlers. Why did that become the norm for cops to drive? Why did that become the normal cop car in a lot of places? You pretty much only see cops driving SUVs around here, and that's why it was so weird to see a sedan. It looked out of place. It didn't look real because I'm just so used to seeing what we used to call party busters. We used to call the SUV cops party busters, and I mean, I still call them that. I still call them party busters because you used to only see them on weekends. You used to see, like growing up in the suburbs, you used to see party busters driving around on Friday and Saturday nights, and it seemed like their job was to look for kids who were up to no good. It seemed like they were looking for underage parties, hence the name party buster. And I don't even think I was ever at a party where the cops came and busted it up. Not as a teenager. I did go to a party when I was in my 20s, probably my mid-20s, that got busted up by the cops, but I don't really remember that one. I don't remember why, or I don't remember if the party busters came, or if they were sedan cops. They were probably party busters. I just don't remember. But yeah, despite that, like we all knew what that meant. Like When someone said, the party busters... Like, I was at a party that didn't get busted, but some kid's mom was out of town, and we were all there, and then a friend of mine showed up and said, hey, on my way here, I, I saw two party busters, and they were heading heading in this direction, and everybody freaked out, started, like, clearing beer bottles, beer cans, started getting rid of them, and it cleared the party out. The cops never came, as far as I know, but just the mention of it, all my friend had to do is come in and say... I saw two party busters on the way over here, and that was enough to make people paranoid. Uh, but now it's all you see. Now just the normal cop car you see strolling around, uh, cruising around town is an SUV. And yeah, it's a lot of gas. Like even if cops get some kind of good deal on gas, I don't know how that works. I don't know if like they gas them up at the police garage and get great deals on gas, or what? I don't know the story, but it seems like no matter who's paying for the gas and how much they're paying, it seems like you wouldn't want police, people who just drive around endlessly. It'd be one thing if you just drive those things from one place to another and keep them parked most of the time, but the fact that they're cruising around nonstop in an SUV, it just seems like a waste of tax money. It just seems like a waste of everybody's money, and I don't know what the advantage is of driving an SUV. I mean, I guess it makes them look more like cavalry. It makes them a little more imposing, but then it gives them less speed. Because nobody's going to convince me that you can get the same speed out of a Ford Explorer or whatever they drive as you'd get out of a a sedan. So you're losing speed in a high-speed chase situation. You're paying a lot more for gas. I'm just not sure what the argument is for them, aside from the fact that they're bigger and they have more of a presence. 
But nobody talks about that. When they talk about defunding the police, they mean all these other things, but they don't mean maybe the cops shouldn't drive SUVs. Although I'm sure a lot of people would agree with that. I've just never even heard that argument. I know somebody out there has probably made it. Somebody out there has probably said, wait a second, why are cops just driving SUVs all the time now? But it's not one of the main talking points you hear. And who knows? I mean, you know, all the people who repeat slogans like that, when something becomes a slogan, you really don't know what the person using it means. Even when it's something very literal, even when it's something like defund the police, it turns out all kinds of people mean all kinds of different things when they use that slogan. And that's one of the issues with a slogan. Because on the one hand, you know, you develop a slogan, you develop a catchphrase or a buzzword for something because it's an easier way of explaining something than just going on a, you know, a paragraph long monologue. You know, it's, it's easier just to have a phrase that you can say that's memorable. But then the, the more that something becomes sloganized, the more common a slogan is, the more commonly used a new buzzword is, the less it actually adheres to its original meaning. And then you have all these different meanings that get crammed in, all these different distortions. People like are looking for excuses to use that. Because, I mean, human beings, like, we get excited when we have something new. I mean, think about the way you talk. Think about your own use of language. And, I mean, I'm constantly running into walls. I'm constantly feeling like I wish I had a new word for that. I wish I had a new way of explaining this. I feel like I'm constantly running into walls. I'm, I'm sick of the same words I use all the time. And so when you learn a new one, especially when it's one that kind of saves you a little bit of time and it's catchy, I mean, there's a reason why that's exciting. Or when someone comes up with a word for something that describes a certain behavior, a certain maybe, a, you know, phenomenon, and, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a thing I've noticed, too. When someone shares an observation about something and they're like, this is a thing that I notice and other people have noticed that people do. Let's give it a name. Let's give it a catchy name. That way we don't have to explain it every time. You see that with things like gaslighting. The word gaslighting came about because somebody saw an old movie, apparently. I'm probably not going to get this perfect, but somebody saw an old movie where a husband, I guess he pretends to turn out the gas lamps or he he turns off the gas lamps or makes them flicker or something. And then when his wife asks about it, he says it's not happening. And so it's a way of manipulating her and making her think she's crazy. And someone was like, that's a thing that people do. And it was originally brought up in this sociopolitical context where it's like it's a thing that men do to women. And maybe there is a very specific behavior that, let's say, abusive husbands, abusive husbands, abusive husbands, I can't even say it. I can't even say husbands anymore. Uh, (laughs) But uh, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm sure abusive husbands do it to women and maybe there is some pattern there. But it's also something people do to everyone. Everyone gaslights everyone. It's kind of a just a basic act of psychological manipulation. It's actually one of the most basic forms of psych, you know, psychological manipulation that somebody can do. It's pretty easy to figure out how to do that. To just be like, I'm going to slightly mess with this person's reality enough to where they feel like something's up. And then when they say something's up, I'm going to deny it and tell them it's all in their head. 
you know, we do that in different ways. We do that literally sometimes, but we do it metaphorically, which is what this whole gaslighting thing was. It was like, here's a metaphor for a certain set of behavior. And I'm not trying to push back on the original, you know, sociopolitical reason why people started using that when I say everybody does it to everybody. I'm just saying that because it's the truth. Everyone does do that to everybody. But you can see where once that became a word and someone said, oh, I know what you're talking about. Oh, and that's the perfect word to describe it. You could see where people from all different points of view were like, oh, yeah, that is a catchy new word, and I'm going to look for opportunities to use it. So you start seeing people use gaslighting to refer to just good old lying. Like now when someone just lies, someone's like, oh, look, they're gaslighting us. I feel like I'm being gaslit. And it's like, no, it's just good old lying. The word gaslighting was developed apparently, to go along with a very specific behavior, a very specific form of lying. It's not just interchangeable with lying, but because it's catchy, because you can't really avoid seeing it places, it gets burned into your brain, people start being like, I'm going to use it. Today, I think I'm going to use that new word I, I learned, gaslighting. But the more people start using it, the more people want to use it, the more people are looking for opportunities to use it, and you just end up with it being basically a synonym for lying, the way most people use it today. And it's like, no, you can just say that somebody's lying. You don't have to try to wrap this buzzword that refers to something much more specific in with just a good old-fashioned lie. Not that I'm attached to the word gaslighting. I honestly couldn't care less how and when people use a word like that. But I'm just saying that it's it was a new word, and you can see where kind of the definition got bent out of shape, and then at some point you have to start explaining the original behavior again. Like, that's the problem. That's like the sort of accordion effect. I call that the accordion effect of language. It's when somebody notices something, and it's something that you have to describe initially. But when you describe it, it resonates with people. It makes sense to people. They think, oh, I'm glad someone else noticed that. I've never put words to it, but that person pointed it out, and that is something that happens. It's something comedians do a lot, where a lot of comedy is based on observations, and it makes the audience say, like, oh, yeah. You know what? I've always kind of been aware of that, but I've never really heard somebody acknowledge it. You know, it's the same thing with anything. It's the same thing with a lot of epiphanies. Usually epiphanies are actually something very simple. But you, you feel like whatever that simple knowledge is, whatever that simple wisdom is, it gets activated in this moment based on how and when you hear it or from you know whom you hear it from. Um, and, and so it's the same thing, though, with a buzzword, because it's kind of like an epiphany when someone says, oh, hey, here's this set of behavior that people do. And I'm going to start calling that gaslighting. And it kind of activates something in your brain where you're like, oh, yeah, that's a thing that people do. And that word works. So I'm going to start using that word. And so now that you have this word, it's like you're, you're pushing the accordion in. And there reaches a point, though, where the word just loses its meaning. People start using the word, but it's been a while since they really thought about how it's supposed to be used. And so they do just start using it in this general way, and it loses its meaning, or it has a bunch of conflicting meanings, which is what you see from slogans. And then you can see with one like that, where I mentioned how gaslighting in particular, it came up as this socio-political term for something that men do to women. 
And as a result, you know, there are a bunch of right-wing reactionary types who then started using it mockingly. Then they started using it sincerely, because that's what happens. It's, it's what I talked about recently, where you start saying something as a joke, and the next thing you know, you're just saying it. You're comfortable saying it, so now you're using it sincerely, even though you meant it sarcastically. You meant it facetiously. And it's funny how you can see that with uh, right-wing types, where you'll see where they'll take something that the left might have put into the conversation, like a phrase like gaslighting, and they'll be like, ooh, you're the one who's always talking about gaslighting, and it seems like you're gaslighting me. <laughs> you know, it's this way of like feeling hip or something. Usually when you see pundits do that, it seems like they're trying to let people they know that they know what's hip. And it's usually embarrassing. Like It's usually not a very funny form of humor when someone takes you know, some sort of annoying thing the opposite political party does, and then you try to, like, say it sarcastically against them. It's usually not a funny form of humor to begin with, but then we see where people start using it sincerely. Like, you will see people on the right wing these days who will sincerely say, like, I feel like I'm being gaslit, after jokingly using that word before, but now it's just, like, in their head, and they just use it. And it's funny to see that happen. And then it's interesting to see something lose its meaning entirely. And then when that happens, when a word loses its meaning, you then have to pull the accordion out again and start actually describing what you mean. And you can even see this with words like terrorism, where the word terrorism distracts from the point. People fight over the word terrorism. How about you just describe what the person did? Say, somebody killed a bunch of people, somebody bombed somebody... And they were, there's evidence that it was religiously or politically motivated. And then you say, what is, does, does that make someone a terrorist? Well, let the court decide. But why don't we just focus, if people are so hung up on a word like terrorism, let's just focus on an accurate description of what the person did. And I think in most cases, people would agree on that. I think in a lot of cases, I mean, people will find reasons to fight about anything and everything, but I think people would agree to a basic description of a crime like that. Let's say somebody, you know, blew up an abortion clinic. They were known for handing out anti, uh, you know, they were known for handing out pro-life pamphlets outside of abortion clinics. You know, there's evidence that this was motivated by politics and their Christian faith. Let's get people to agree that there's evidence of that and not throw any words in that are going to distract from that point. Because it, it turns into this game that you see people play all the time where, you know, you see some people say, oh, a, 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 a Muslim shot up a, a blah, blah, blah. A Muslim walked into a blah, blah, blah. It's the name of the it's a sandwich shop on the West Coast. It's called blah, blah, blah. And he, uh, he shot a bunch of people in there, and there's evidence that it was religiously motivated. You know, who cares whether you call it terrorism or not? But some people are very attached to the idea of calling it that, and then there's this other group of people who are very attached to their opposition to that. But when these two people butt heads, 
they're focused entirely on just this placeholder word. Like the word terrorism is a placeholder word that is supposed to describe a certain behavior or action, a set of actions, like an an ideologically motivated act of violence. Most people would agree that that meets the basic definition of terrorism, but they don't even really care about the definition. They don't even care about describing an event accurately and agreeing on that description. They focus entirely on this word. And that's a good example of like the accordion's been pressed in on itself. And it's time to start pulling it out. And let's get away from calling things terrorism because the people who then say, oh, you know, these people are too quick to call crimes terrorism if they're done by somebody from a certain religious background. But then those same people will then go, but you know what? In retaliation... Because this is a game and we have to volley back and forth, we're going to start calling anything that that somebody might consider white supremacism. We're going to start considering white supremacy, anything that could be potentially connected to white supremacy in any way. We're going to start calling that terrorism. We're going to be the ones now who are throwing the word terrorism out all the time. And so it just becomes about who can use the word terrorism the most who can use the word terrorism in the most politically advantageous way. So that becomes the game. And it's no longer about just describing individual events. And yes, yeah, somebody can get charged with terrorism, like the crime, like, you know, cause that's the thing is it's, I think most people would actually agree in a legal sense, what terrorism is. Most people would agree that as a crime, terrorism fits a very specific definition But the issue seems to center around conversations as well as just media dialogue. Like all of the issues about terrorism seem to be, they seem to exist outside of terrorism in a legal sense. They seem to exist in this area where it's like people are just thinking about the way something sounds, either in print or when someone says it out loud. It seems to be entirely focused on the most superficial aspects which is funny because they make such a big deal. So then they end up focus. They're basically focusing on the phonetics of it rather than what it means. And so that's a good opportunity to just avoid the word altogether. Like I'm not married to the word terrorism. Like if I need to clarify something, I'll say, Oh, this person committed a certain crime and it appears that they had this in mind. It appears they were motivated by this. That's good enough for me. I don't need the word terrorism. I'm not attached to the word terrorism. I'm fine with an honest description of the behavior, regardless of whatever buzzword you want to give it. And words do lose their meaning, maybe temporarily, maybe like they just need to be out of use for a while and we can bring them back. But terrorist is a good version, you know, is a good word. Uh, Yet we've kind of ruined it. I mean, I think terrorism really brings something. It's, it's a visceral word. It really brings something out of you when you hear it. It's scary. Terror. Somebody who commits an act of terror. Somebody who's trying to inspire terror in people. A terrorist. It's a pretty scary word. And it's unfortunate that we ruined it in the last 20, 30 years, however long. I don't know how long it's been that controversial of a word. But it's become one of the most controversial words when it seems totally unnecessary to me. Seems totally unnecessary to make a word like that so controversial. 
Um, but uh, we we have ruined it. Maybe it can come back into use if we wait, if we just stop using it for a while. But I think you do have to reach a point where you pull the accordion out because you need to actually explain what it is you mean at a certain point. And then you do enough of that, people get it again, people understand what you mean again, and then you push the accordion in again and go, here's a, a cute way of saying this. Here's a word that we can use. So I feel like we as humans with language, we're continually going in and out. There's that accordion effect where we come up with a simplified way of expressing something and it catches on. But then with that catching on, it loses its meaning and we have to start elaborating on it again. We have to start actually explaining in detail what we mean. And then that becomes long-winded. People start to understand and then you have to reduce it again. You have to simplify it again. So it's constantly going in and out. And there are certain words that we just have to abandon for a while. And we're so attached to words. And I understand completely. I love words. I absolutely love words. Uh, they continue to keep me entertained, just thinking about where they come from, what they mean. You know, whether I'm pronouncing them right, which half the time I'm not. But I love words. And, you know, so I understand why we as a, a people are so attached to them. But we're constantly forgetting the fact, or maybe not ever aware of the fact, that words are placeholders. And when we get too distracted by the word, we actually forget what that word means. We forget why we started referring to a certain set of ideas using that word. And you see that with ideology. You see that with politics. You see where a set of beliefs gets bundled together and... An easy way of saying you have these 10 core beliefs is to just say, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm a Christian. You know, whatever other over-identification you want to do. Because we live in this time of over-identification, which just makes this an even bigger mess. But we do, once a set of ideas is bundled and given a name, we can start calling ourselves that because it's simpler. It's simpler than having to explain. I mean, I, I've mentioned this before with being an artist. You know, many artists feel uncomfortable with the word artist. And I say that's true for me, too, especially when I was younger. I really didn't like the idea of saying, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. I didn't like to say that. But then you end up wasting a lot of time. You end up trying to explain what you do. And I mean, you could just say, oh, I like drawing. You know, that's usually how I would put it. I wouldn't say I'm an artist. I'd just say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I like to draw. That's a very easy way of just describing the action that you do without labeling yourself, without putting yourself in a category like artist. But you end up wasting a lot of time, too. And you end up actually becoming more pretentious than the person who just says, oh, I'm an artist. Because you've come up with some way of dancing around that word. And you've put all this effort into dancing around that word. And you've come up with some way of explaining it. You've come up with an artist's explanation for why you don't call yourself an artist. And that makes things so much more unnecessarily complicated than just saying, if someone says, oh, what are you into? Oh, I'm an artist. And that's it. And if they judge you for saying that, that's fine too. At the very least, you understand why they're judging you, given that you're reluctant to call yourself that. So you understand why someone might be put off by it. But, it, you know, ultimately, it's just a simplified way of referring to who you are and what you do. 
But sometimes we get too into that, you know, because it makes sense why we do that. It makes sense why if you have a certain set of beliefs, you just call yourself a Christian. Because it's a lot easier than breaking down the entire list of every single belief you have just to explain to someone what your personal philosophy is, to explain to them what your worldview is. So you just say, oh, I'm a Christian. And that's easy. And for some people, it's accurate. You know, and it doesn't make you anything. It doesn't make you better or worse because you do or don't fit in a a one-size-fits-all category where calling yourself a certain name describes all of your beliefs or all of the ideas that you have. You know, it doesn't make you better or worse because you can do that or not. It's just something that some people feel more comfortable doing and Sometimes it's just, it's to simplify things. Sometimes it's so that you don't have to have an entire rambling conversation about everything that goes on in your head. You can just tell somebody something in one word that basically describes you. And isn't that pretty much all we can hope for anyway, too, is I hope that I say things that basically describe who I think I am. If I basically express myself how I want to, to, you know, if I basically express myself in a way that is, you know, even just a little bit accurate, that's a success, I feel like, in this world of just confusion and and misunderstanding. I think if someone even just gets one thing you said one time, I think that's a win. But, uh, you know, this over-identification, it's a word that I heard the other day. I heard somebody use that, over-identification. And I think it fits into all this. I think this idea of over-identifying. Because there are some identities that you're not going to escape no matter what. You know, no matter how much, no matter how Buddhist you get, no matter how you feel when you're in, you know, some state of Satori, whatever it is, you know, there are some identities you're just not going to escape most of the time. And you have a pretty good idea of what those are. You know, it's your race. It's your genetic background. It's your height. You know, it's, it's the way you're born. There's certain ways that you, no matter how much you try, you're going to be that thing. It's your nationality. If you're born and raised in America, it's going to be really difficult to escape your American identity. And it's going to be hard living in America to do that. It's hard to be an American and escape your American identity while living in America. But you know what's even harder is losing your American identity in another country where everybody knows you as the American. I always laugh when people say, like, I'm leaving the country. I'm leaving. Oh, man, they elected him. I'm leaving the country. I'm going to go move to Europe. I'm going to go move to Europe. And it's funny because they want to escape their American identity. They want to escape being an American. They don't want to feel like an American anymore because America has disappointed them. So they're going to go move to a village in Germany. You go move to that village in Germany and everybody in the town is going to have a nickname for you. And that's the American. You're going to be the most American person for 100 kilometers. I don't even know how big Germany is. You're going to be the most American person in that entire village, and they're all going to know it. 
doesn't mean they're going to hate you for it, but it's just funny how sometimes the harder we try to escape our identity, the more that it comes back to us, the more reinforced it becomes. And that's what's always funny to me about people who are like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving America in a big huff because it's like you're about to make yourself even more American by going elsewhere where everybody's going to know exactly who and what you are. Um, but, uh, yeah, there are some that are just difficult to escape. And it seems like, like in the same way that like, like not calling yourself an artist when you're put on the spot, you end up spending a lot more time and energy avoiding just saying that than you would have if you just said that and moved along. And I think it's kind of the same thing with some of your core identities. Like the more you try to escape some of these basic biological characteristics you have. It could be any. I mean, I think in some cases like balding, where you see the effort that people put into balding, or into, you know, fighting it and hiding it. And it seems like just letting go of that, you know, and who cares? Like if somebody wants to get hair plugs, if somebody wants to wear a toupee, if somebody has a comb over... You know, if somebody, I mean, in my opinion, the new comb over is a completely shaved head. Like when a guy completely shaves his head down to the skin, I feel like that's the new comb over because it's a way of like telling people, oh, you don't know if I'm just bald or you don't know if it's all a choice because it's all skin, baby. I feel like that's the new comb over. It's a way of saying I chose to be a skinhead. And because you can't tell where my hairline is because there's no hair on my head. You don't know if I chose this or if it just happened to me. Anyway, but anyway, like, you know, it's like something like that where, like, somebody who balds, like, I'm balding, like, barring, like, doing something, paying a lot of money for some kind of procedure or going through, like, the daily humiliation of, like, spraying Rogaine foam into your scalp and, like, massaging your scalp with the hope of doing what? Like, retaining your hair? You know, I don't, you know, people take these medications and stuff, but like the, uh, the amount of energy that somebody puts into escaping the fact that they're balding, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of money and energy that could go somewhere else for what's ultimately vanity. And again, I don't judge someone for that. Who knows if I had millions of dollars, maybe I would do something like that just to see what happens. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's a good example of what I'm talking about, where it's like sometimes you try so hard to escape something that you can't escape. And I mean, you see that with hair plugs sometimes, or like you'll see where guys, at least in the past, would get hair plugs. And it's obvious, like it looks almost like they're wearing a a hairnet made of hair, especially some of the older hair plug techniques looked like that. And so you actually end up thinking about that guy's baldness underneath the hair plugs like you you end up thinking more about that guy's shitty hair plugs than you would if he was just a baldman like if he was just a baldman you might be like oh he's a bald man for better and worse but because the guy obviously had hair plugs and you can see what they are you can see that there's something weird and artificial about his scalp you end up thinking more about that so it's just you know it's it's one of those funny little things you know, where it's like the harder you try to avoid something, the more you end up becoming that thing, the more important you make that thing for one. I mean, that's obvious. I think that should be a big one that pretty much everyone recognizes that at the very least, you make that thing you're avoiding that much more important. 
But just going back to the, you know, the accordion effect of language and how we'll come up with this word for something, and then we sort of just destroy that word, forcing us to go back to explaining it again, to describing it again, and how that brings us back to coming up with a word or a phrase. And so it's just this back and forth of simplifying and then elaborating again and simplifying and elaborating. And I think it's good to do that. You know, I think it's good that we do that. And I try to be conscious of it when I can. I mean, you can't always. And you can't expect the culture to be conscious of it. You can't necessarily expect everybody collectively to make a decision where they're like, oh, this word that we're using has lost its meaning. So let's go back to describing the meaning. And then we'll go from there. Maybe we'll come up with that word again. Maybe we'll be able to simplify again. But people don't do that as a whole. We don't all decide that as a whole, but I think, you know, when you find yourself using a word and you realize that it's actually lost its meaning, like even if it's still meaningful to you, if you think about the fact that anybody who hears it is going to have no idea what you actually mean, that idea has been stretched out. It's been just pulled apart. People are going to have no idea what you actually mean by it. And a good example of this is the word racist. That word has lost a lot of its meaning. It's been stretched and pulled. It's been given multiple definitions, some of which conflict with each other, but are, but are expressed simultaneously. It's become this scarlet letter that you can just pull out, and that's all you need to say about somebody because it is so general and it applies to so many different things. And none of this is new. Like, I've been feeling that way about the word racist for many years, and I've avoided using it as a result. There is a certain set of behavior that that word was invented for. And that behavior happens. But it reached a point where that word started to mean a lot of different things. And it's not just that the word started to mean a lot of different things, but it started to be used in a very forceful way. And that's a dangerous combination right there. And I hesitate to use the word dangerous because this has happened to that word, where you start using dangerous to apply to things that aren't dangerous. And what word are you going to use to describe things that are actually dangerous? Maybe a better way to put it without using the, that word, dangerous, is just to say that you should be very wary when a word both loses its meaning or takes on such a broad meaning that uh, it really doesn't matter what it refers to when you use it. Because chances are you'll find something. Chances are it'll stick in some way. But when that happens, when something basically has its definition just blown out, combined with that word being used forcefully, combined with a word drawing the level of, again, semantic controversy, it's kind of like I was talking about gaslighting. One of the worst sort of reactionary responses you see from the right is, you ever think about how the left wing are the real racists? And even though sometimes someone has a, a thread of logic to that, like when you see neo-segregation, neo-segregation, like you'll see things like that where... You'll see like meetings, you'll, you'll see something online about how some school board had a segregated meeting. 
but yet they're all liberals. And you see that and you're like, yeah, that does kind of remind you of how things used to be. And then someone on the right goes, see, the liberals are the real racists. They're the real racists. The liberals are the real racists. <laughs> You'll hear someone say that and they think they're very witty. But they're playing the same game. And even though they might do that as a joke initially, kind of like with gaslighting, where it's like, you guys are the ones who are always whining about gaslighting. Now you're the one gaslighting me. And how making that joke is a slippery slope to being like, you're gaslighting me. Oh, my. You know, it, 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 you're one step away from being the person that you hated initially. And it's the same thing with this racism thing where it's like when someone on the right, like, hears about this segregated school board meeting the, in a roundabout way, like in this horseshoe theory sort of way is like, well, wait a second. You're bringing segregation back? Like, a lot of people pause when they hear things like that. But the sort of right-wing reactionary who feels the need to be like, see, I told you, you were the real racist all along. You know, it's, you're playing the game that you supposedly hate. Like, I thought you hated the game where you call things racist. And you're not being witty. Like, even if you're just doing it to be funny, you're not witty. So just don't even play that game. And what I've done over the years is like, I avoid using the word racist. I avoid using that. I am more than comfortable describing a set of behavior. But when a word like that loses its meaning, I think you have to go long form again. And you can see where even just our taste goes between long form and short. You know, a good example is when the inter- when, when YouTube videos got popular... A lot of the more popular videos were these like very fast paced short videos. The idea was that like we're modern people with very little time and we want to consume a lot in that limited time. And so the idea is like I'll watch a five minute YouTube video that's like chopped up so that there's no spacing between ideas. Like it's just everything is just thrown at you. It's like this barrage because the idea is to cram as much entertainment, as much information into this little five minute video as possible. And that was sort of the currency of something like YouTube, at least as far as I know, because I wasn't one of these people who was like watching YouTube stars or anything like that. But from what I can see, it was the idea was keep it short, cram a lot in it. And then that gave way to, you know, the podcast boom, which was that Dude, you know what's awesome? Like listening to people for three hours talk about nothing. It's just like being in someone's at someone's barbecue and hearing them talk about bullshit for three hours. But it, it rules, man. So you can see where that became refreshing to people. And I don't mean to say that like all of these audiences overlap. Like I don't know that the the same audience who got really into five minute YouTube fast-paced videos. I don't know that that's the same person who then got into long-form podcasts, but you can see where there's just an ebb and a flow to what people want. I always talk about the cars where it's like you see where like there'll be 10 years of cars with kind of a rounded edge to them. Like cars are kind of rounded and, and that's what people get used to. And then someone squares off a new car. 10 years later, the new year of cars comes out and this one's square and people people are like, oh my God, can you believe that? Can you believe that that Jeep is squared off after it was, it's been round for so long. And then 10 years later, they round it off again. It becomes rounded. You can see where just trends in the shapes of things follows this rule. 
but going back to like the long form versus short idea. Yeah, you saw that with just what people were into where it's, you know, you can just see where there was an audience and whether there was crossover between those audiences or not, there was an audience out there who went from wanting short things, short and fast to long drawn out unedited things of just whatever comes out, comes out. But I think we're at a point where people are sick of three hours of nothing. Especially when you've listened to some the same person do that. Like you think about popular podcasts, and it was fun to listen to them talk for two or three hours about nothing. But now you've been listening to that same person do that for 10 years, five years maybe, depending on when you start paying attention to that stuff. And so how much can you do that? You get sick of anyone. You get sick of your loved ones. You get sick of your friends. So we're probably reaching a point again soon here where it's like short is going to be popular again. I mean, you see where things like TikTok have become very popular kind of as podcasts have plateaued, you know, and, and we're more or less just like reinventing the same things in different ways. It's not like a lot of these things are fundamentally different from anything else. Um, it, it is just kind of like going between cars with more of a squared off rigid shape back to more rounded edges on cars and each time we do it we're like wow can you believe that but really it's just contrast it's that story of contrast where we respond to contrast and contrast is what makes something seem more different than it really is it's what makes something seem new when it isn't necessarily it's just that it contrasts with how things have been going but getting back to language getting back to words You know, it's the same thing where people get used to the idea of having code words for everything. It's cool to have this word that we can use that sums that thing up completely. But then that kind of has limitations, especially when we over-identify that way. And one of the byproducts of over-identification is that your different identities have to fit together. I mean, I don't think they have to. I think you can actually hold conflicting beliefs, and a lot of people do. A lot of people obviously have hypocritical beliefs. But, you know, I don't think that uh, most people are that aware of it. Like, I don't think people are that aware, as far as their active mind goes, of the different hypocrisies they have going on. And I'd say that's true for me, too. I'm not removing myself from that. I think there are probably hypocrisies to me that I'm not aware of, but they're there. And there's others that I am aware of. And there's others that aren't even actually hypocrisies. It's just that they were bundled a certain way. It's what I talk about when I, I talk about these political bundles, where the idea is that if you're a Democrat, you subscribe to this checklist of beliefs. Well, do you? Do you subscribe to all of those? And what would happen if you didn't? What would happen if you were a Democrat who is against gun control but believes abortion should be legal? Someone would say that's hypocritical because it doesn't align with what you think a modern liberal believes in. But the reality is those two things have nothing to do with each other. Those two beliefs that have been bundled as part of this neoliberal package 
the neoliberal package. Now, these things that have been bundled together, they don't actually depend on each other in any way. They don't actually relate to each other in any way. But yet we would think it might be a little hypocritical to believe one but not the other, because we think in order to be a Democrat, you have to believe in those two things. And we're focused way too much on the word Democrat and less on what those things actually mean and whether those things actually have to go together. But it's because we're so preoccupied with the word. We're so preoccupi- preoccupied with the words Democrat and Republican. And very rarely do we get into what that means. And I would say those are good examples of words to just throw out forever. Those are words that I don't want to come back. We need to just get rid of those, get rid of those words forever. Those words have been completely ruined. Throw them out. Like some words, you just kind of hang them up. You hope that somebody washes them. You hope you just want to like hang them up and hope that they get disinfected. Other words you just throw out forever and it doesn't matter if they ever come back and you kind of hope they don't come back. And that's words like Democrat and Republican. And inevitably, we will come up with new words. You know, inevitably, if you throw words like that out in 20 years, we'll be right back where we started. And that's okay. That's kind of the ebb and the flow that I'm talking about. You spend some time being like, I'm not going to over-identify. I'm not going to attach myself to certain identities that don't fully even represent me. I'm just going to tell you when it comes up how I feel about certain things. And you know what? If you're like me, your feelings about those things change from day to day. And not permanently sometimes. You know, you might wake up one day and have a very hardline opinion about something. You might wake up one day and be like, yeah, you know what? Uh, They really need to allow abortion clinics in every single state and allow free abortions for anybody who wants one. You might wake up and feel that way one day. And then the next day, just something. Maybe it's not even something that happened. Maybe nothing actually changed. You weren't even exposed to any different information, but the subject comes up again. And you're just like, yeah, you know what? Like, life is sacred. Maybe we should just, maybe we should allow abortions, but make the process, you know, a little more difficult. Maybe we shouldn't make it too easy. And that's sort of the worst of both worlds because nobody's going to like you. Like pro-life people are going to hear that. Like if you say like, hey, you know, I think that it's better that women have the option so that they're not going into the back alley. I think it's better to give them the option of doing it because otherwise they'll put themselves and the child at greater risk if they're going to some back alley operation. So why don't we have them but just make the process complicated and difficult to discourage just anyone and everyone from doing it. Everybody's going to hate you for that one. You know, the the people who are, you know, pro-choice, they're going to hate you for that one because they're going to be like, how dare you make the process any more difficult than it already is? And then the the pro-life people are going to be like, how dare you think that there should be clinics at all? And so nobody's going to like you for that one. But 
your opinion might go back and forth. You might feel differently about that from one day to the next. And you know what? You might feel nothing. You might not even have an opinion sometimes, most of the time. Most of the time, you probably don't. And that's true for all kinds of things that are bundled in. Because the thing about those political bundles, the thing thing about these bundles of socio-political issues that get attached to a certain identity, a certain word you use to describe to people what you are, the thing about those bundles, it's not just that it bundles ideas together that don't necessarily have to belong with each other, like abortion and guns, but it also makes you think that every item in that bundle is something that you have to care about at all. And that might be the bigger problem, because the idea is that you think you need to have an opinion on this. And this is how I felt a few weeks ago when things were heating up between Israel and Israel, Israel and Hamas is, I was interested. I was like, oh, things are happening over there. That's a serious place. That's honestly what I think. I just, when I hear things are happening in the Middle East, I just go, ooh, that's a serious place. That's a serious place over there. That's all I think about. I don't actually have an opinion. Because you know what? To have an opinion on that, and I'm not saying people shouldn't. I'm not saying that an American should not have an opinion on what goes on anywhere. In Israel, in you know Palestine, on that Gaza Strip. That little Gaza Strip there. Um... I hear there's a lot of casinos on Gaza Strip. Um, Anyway, uh, you know, I'm not faulting anybody for having an opinion on that, for being informed or thinking about that. But for me personally, there's no way that I could have an opinion on that without basically like having to do all this homework about something I'm not particularly concerned about. And it's not that I want to remain ignorant. It's just that I want to reserve my energy. I have a limited amount of energy. And you can see where people are just blowing their entire energy wad nonstop. And these are the same people who are saying they're depressed and exhausted. And I'm not saying that this is the the source of their depression. But I'm just saying I notice a high correlation between the people who are saying... I'm so depressed and exhausted all the time. And, and it's like you're the same person who feels the need to have an opinion on every freaking thing and you're constantly like digging in and thinking you need to be an expert on every single thing that hits the news every single controversial subject that comes up no wonder you're so exhausted no wonder you don't feel great like maybe you have something chemically wrong with you too maybe you have some sort of clinical depression i'm not saying you cause it yourself but i don't think that just immersing yourself in this world of opinions where you yourself have this need to be a little pundit i mean that sounds like hell to me like realistically that sounds like a living hell to me and i'm not saying everybody who does that is in a living hell i mean some people do it it's their job some people they do it professionally Some people are just genuinely interested in world events or specific world events. Some people have a vested interest in what goes on. Some people are Jewish with relatives in Israel. Some people have a background in Palestine. You know, people have reasons to be interested in the things they're interested in. And even if you don't have a reason, I don't think there's anything wrong for being interested in something outside of your immediate environment, because God knows most of my interests are outside of my world. You know, a lot of the things that I pay attention to 
aren't things that I would come across in my immediate environment. But it's the need to have an opinion on everything. And you can see where people do feel that need and it does exhaust them. It does rip their energy out of them. And so when life gives you an opportunity to not have an opinion on something and you not having an opinion won't have any repercussions for anybody. Like truly, my opinion on what goes on between Israel and Hamas is going to have no impact. Like even though I believe in manifestation and thoughts having power, I don't believe that I have the passion to think such high-powered thoughts about Israel and Israel. I can't, I can't even say Israel anymore. Israel. Oh, is that the guy who says Israel? No, but I don't think that I have the passion to think such high-powered thoughts about Israel and Hamas that I could possibly affect what goes on there. I don't believe that. I'd be pretending. And just like other fake magic, nothing would happen. I would just be tired. And uh, anyway, though, it's just I think sometimes when life gives you an opportunity to not have an opinion on something, especially something that everybody else is talking about, something that you can't avoid paying attention to, that's an even stronger sign that you have a wonderful opportunity to not care and to feel no guilt for it. Because you not caring will have no impact on that thing one way or another. And I don't mean that from a nihilistic point of view, because there are plenty of things that you can and will have an impact on. That's the thing, is that you can have opinions on things where your opinion will make a difference. And those are usually things in your own environment. That's usually your own life, your friends' lives, your family's lives, your neighborhood for that matter. But you'll find even then, even on that like small intimate scale, you'll find that you don't need to have opinions about half the things that you feel compelled to have opinions on too. Like when your friend is telling you about some mess that they got themselves into and they're not looking for any advice, they're just wanting to talk about it, you don't actually have to form an opinion on that. Yeah, you can want your friend's well-being, you, you know, you can wish your friend well, you can hope that they, hope that they you know, choose the right, they make the right decision. And if they ask you, you can give them advice, but you're actually not forced to take an opinion. You're not forced to get sucked into the drama of their life even, even though it's fun to do that. Like I enjoy, like I'm, I'm invested in my friends' lives. Of course I am. I enjoy hearing about what's going on in my friends' lives. I enjoy when something big happens, something dramatic you know, not even petty drama, but just when they have something to say, I like that. But I don't need to necessarily have a reaction or a response or an opinion. But we often feel like we have to. We often feel like we're expected to chime in and say something and have a stance. But you don't need to. You, you don't need to. And that's why it's a great opportunity when you don't have to do that, because you inevitably will anyway. You will inevitably have a stance on things anyway. But these bundles, you know, you don't have to care about everything on that bundle and your opinion can fluctuate. That's the other thing, too. That's kind of what got me rolling on this whole tangent is just the idea that your opinion on on serious things can fluctuate. And I think it's healthy for it to fluctuate. Like, yeah, you don't want to be a flip flopper. You don't want to have no foundation. 
Because chances are, if you have some kind of foundation, if you believe in something, chances are you will lean one way or another. But I think it's okay with just these, these things that are swimming around in our heads. I think it's okay to go back and forth a little bit. I think it's okay to even have conflicting ideas about that thing. Because how else are you going to understand the whole of it? Like, I, I think you're going to be more informed about something controversial if you feel both ways about it, or always. It's not just two sides. But if you felt all the different ways there are to feel about that thing, for, against, ambivalent, neutral, if you felt all of those different things about something, you're going to understand that thing better. So there's a good chance that whatever you end up resting on in the end is going to be a more informed opinion. Because at the very least, you understand the people who don't agree with you. And that's what's missing in a lot of cases, just not understanding what people are getting at or why they feel the way they do. Like if you don't understand why a certain sort of person says, we need to ban machine guns after a shooting, you don't have to agree with them. You don't have to agree with the person who wants drastic restrictions on guns after a mass shooting. Like you don't have to agree with them, but can you at least understand them? Can you at least understand the person who, whether they're guided by logic or emotions or some combination, can you at least understand why there is a certain type of person who hears about a mass shooting and says, we need to stop the sale of guns, submachine guns, automatic rifles? You know, can you at least understand where that person is coming from? Because I can. It's not hard, even though I don't agree wholly, even though I don't agree with what the left wants in terms of gun control, or at least what a large group of the left wants, you know, even though I don't agree with that, I completely understand why a certain person comes to that conclusion. I completely understand why that is their response when they hear about another shooting. I don't agree with it necessarily. In fact, I don't. But I at least understand where they're coming from. And, you know, I've brought it up before. This came up a couple of months ago, I think, because I was talking about the wall, too. Like, if you don't understand the natural human tendency to want to wall yourself off, to wall you and your people off, if you don't understand the thousands of years that have instilled, you know, a little paranoia about other people and places, and if you don't understand why you know, anytime they discover some ancient city, it's surrounded by a wall. Like speaking of the Middle East, it's like these these towns that were built on hills are completely surrounded by walls. Like if you don't understand the natural human tendency to want to protect yourself with a wall, whether it's your own home having walls, whether you live in a neighborhood that has walls, whether you, you, you know, you fence your yard in. And I mean, these are the sort of arguments people use where they're like, you live in a gated community. How, how do you not understand why you would want something <clears throat> similar around your country? And, you know, that's a valid argument, even though that's another one of these sort of like reactionary cliches. Like you have a, your yard is fenced in. You know, how can you how can you criticize someone for wanting a border wall when you have a you know, fenced in yard? Or your house is surrounded by a, you know, your house is gated. 
Your neighborhood is gated. But that, that is a valid argument because it's like we all have that understanding one way or another. Like we all understand why people build fences and lock their doors. Why they put up walls, you know, around their communities, why ancient people did that. We all kind of understand that. But yet when there are people in today's world who want a new wall, they're just demons. Well, I think you can understand them a little better than that. I think you can give them a little more than that. Well, there are people who might be just crazed about it. There might be people who see all immigrants as evil criminals. But there are a lot of people who just, there's something inside of them that feels better about the idea of having a wall. And you can at least give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt in saying, hey, it's kind of built into us to do this. There's something inside of us, and archaeology shows it better than anything else, that makes us want to build walls around our stuff. And you don't have to agree with that. You can say, hey, I think we've moved far enough along. I think humanity is on a level today where we don't have to build walls around everything. That's kind of primitive. And it sends the wrong message. You know, you can make that argument, but you have to understand where many people are coming from when they want a wall. In the same way that somebody who's like, oh, how can you believe these liberals who want guns banned after a mass shooting? Yeah, I can believe them. I understand where they're coming from. I don't agree, but I understand them. And so that's missing in all this stuff. And this does play into the whole idea I'm talking about with the accordion effect, because we suddenly will stop elaborating on something. You know, we will suddenly stop elaborating on something and we will push that accordion in to where it's totally compacted. And we're totally hung up on these superficial words, these placeholder words. We're no longer thinking about the actual ideas. And these words are part of these larger bundles that are then part of this identity that we've taken on ourselves. It's not one of these things that you really can't escape from. Because, I mean, you can see where, like... I mean, a good example of what I was talking about earlier, where it's like there are some things about you where the harder you try to escape from it, the more you become that thing. And I use the example of somebody who's like, I hate America. I'm moving to a small German village. And then you become the, the person who's referred to in that village as the American. You become more of that thing that you didn't want to be. And you can see that with these people who it's typically, it seems to be like liberal academic women who have been caught doing this, but white women who pretend they're black. And the obvious famous one is Rachel Dolezal, who is, it's amazing that like, I'll probably still remember her name when I'm 80. Like her little antics ruined her life effectively. Like it didn't necessarily ruin her life. Like she can find some sort of redemption or salvation, but just the fact that there are a lot of people who 60 years from now, if they're still alive, will vaguely, at the very least, remember that name. Like when I'm 80 years old, if somebody says, hey, does the name Rachel Dolezal ring any bells? I'll probably go, you know what? Yeah, that was the white woman who pretended she was black. You know, there's a chance that I'll remember that because her name has been burned into people's heads. But you can see where, like, she was trying to escape what she was. She was trying to escape the fact that she was a white woman. 
And I guess she convinced some people that she wasn't, I guess she convinced some people that she was at least part black. But you can see where once she was outed, the first thing people think about her is that she's a white woman. Like she wanted nothing more than to escape her identity as a white woman. But when she got found out, she is now in everybody's head, the white woman who pretended to be black. Whereas, like, if somebody were to hear my name, whether they know me or not, if they just heard my name, if they really thought about it, like, if they were pressed, they would probably be like, oh, well, I, I assume it's a white man. Eric Stonefeld? Okay. Yeah, that name, it sounds like the name of a white man. But chances are it wouldn't be the first thing they think. You know, if they were asked to describe me, if they were asked, like, what race do you think that the man Eric Stonefeld is? They'd probably be like, well, he's probably a, a white man. He's probably a European American. That's probably what they'd say. But it's not necessarily going to be the first thought they have. The first thought they have isn't going to be the white man who did every night to school night. That's not what they're going to think. Whereas with her, for the rest of her life, Anybody who was alive in the last 10 years, anybody who was of age in the last decade is going to think of her as the white woman who pretended she was black. They're going to remember much more. They're going to have a much stronger memory of this identity she was trying to escape. And in trying to escape that identity, she's actually become linked to that identity even more. Her whiteness is actually a much bigger part of her life story than, than it is for me or anybody else. And it's funny, the irony of that is that's what she was trying to escape. So you can see that, where, like, you can't escape that. Whether you think race is ultimately superficial, whether you think it's just some... what It really doesn't matter what you think it is, biologically, culturally. It doesn't matter what you think race is. It's something that you're going to have a very difficult time avoiding. And there's no tolerance for pretending that you're something other than what you are. There's very little tolerance, I should say. You will be mocked or hated, in most cases, for pretending to be something other than what you appear to be to everyone else. Like, if you're a white man who's really into anime... There's a picture that's made its rounds over the years on the internet, going way back... And it was of a guy wearing a, I don't even know what to call it, like those, I just call them like a Raiden hat, you know, from Mortal Kombat. One of those straw, like, Asian villager hats, you know, like the ones that are just wide. And he's wearing one of those, it has like a little point on the top. But he's wearing one of those on a bus, surrounded, he's like a skinny, white, nerdy guy. And he's just, he's wearing one of those hats and he's sincere. You know, he's some kind of nerdy guy who's obsessed with Japan or wherever it is he's living. And he's on a bus in Asia surrounded by businessmen who are just wearing suits. They're just like a bunch of middle-aged Asian men wearing suits. And there's this freaking like Japanophile anime nerd wearing one of those hats surrounded by all these businessmen in their suits. And it's obviously embarrassing. Like you see that photo and you just cringe because you're like, oh man, that guy... He's trying to be Japanese. 
So you can see where like, like even just somebody like that, like there's nothing inherently offensive about an anime kid who tries to kind of dress and act Japanese. Like there's nothing, like he's not hurting anybody, but yet you see it. And it's like, I feel a strong urge to mock that and judge him. And then obviously wiggers are something I've, I've talked about extensively where it's like the same thing with wiggers where while there was a certain sort of person, like there was a window of time where wiggers were thought of as cool. For the most part, though, most people in the long run ended up mocking or hating them because they're like, these are white dudes who think they're black. They're white guys who think they're black. It's like everybody ends up hating that. It's almost like having that opinion about abortion that makes the pro-life people hate you and the pro-choice people hate you. I think Wiggers managed to find that sweet spot where it's like what they're doing will ultimately receive mockery from their fellow white men. But they won't find acceptance. They'll still have mockery from the black men who they're trying to copy, who they're trying to be like. So it's like a kind of a no-win situation in the long run. There was just this sweet little window of time where they were popular in school, but it wasn't sustainable. But we do have this tendency to kind of despise it. You can even see it within cultures where you see where like in immigrant cultures, like I went to a school with a lot of Asian kids of different types and among themselves, they would give each other a hard time. There were certain kids who would give other kids a hard time for acting too white, for taking on too much of just mainstream American culture. So there's, you know, it's, it's a, a very serious controversy, controversy, controversy for anybody who tries to take on another cultural identity, especially too quickly. Like, it's one thing if you live in a place forever. It's one thing if it's gradual. I mean, look at the way people treated Madonna for taking on a British accent, which, yeah, it does come across pretentious and annoying. But maybe she just lived in Britain for long enough and was surrounded by Brits to where she did end up taking it on. We do mirror each other. We do mimic each other's language. Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes when you're having a one-on-one conversation with somebody, you'll use a word or they'll use a word, and you find that you both start using it more. You both take on a similar tone. You meet each other at the other person's level. It's an interesting thing that we do, where we do kind of meet each other somewhere in the middle, we try to, where we start talking like that other person. And so I don't know. I don't know if Madonna's British accent was fake or not, but people hated her for it. People mocked her relentlessly for it. People used that as an opportunity to try to humiliate Madonna publicly. And it's, again, what I'm talking about, where it's like the idea is that she took on a way of talking that wasn't natural to her. She took on a way of talking that you only see in this other part of the world where she didn't grow up and she's only lived for a short time. And for some reason, that infuriates us. And people are still wondering why people want to build walls. For the same reason that someone gets really angry when a celebrity who moves to England starts sounding like a Brit. You know, there's something built inside of us that takes offense to that. There's something inside of us that sees that. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying it's there. 
There's something inside of us that when we see somebody acting in a way that we feel is not just artificial, but is also somehow like, like artificial on a whole larger level. Like they're trying to act like they're part of a group that they don't belong to. That seems to bother us at a core level. And there are some things where like you can fake it till you make it. Like we look, we look for people in this way in anything we do. It's like when you're a teenager and somebody gets into punk and somebody who's been into punk for like two more months than that person. Like person A went through their sex pistols phase three months before this other kid. And now this other kid is going through a sex pistols phase. And, and the first kid is like, oh, look at the poser. Look at that poser. Oh my God, this person's such a, a freaking poser. They're biting on my heels. That's how a teenager into punk sounds. No, but we have this tendency to like look at that. We, we look for that in other people rather than looking at that and being like, oh, hey, there's another person who's into the thing that I'm into. Maybe I can become friends with them. Maybe they maybe they might be able to turn me on to something that I'm not aware of. Or maybe I can turn them on to something. You know, maybe there's a relationship here. Maybe maybe we can do something with this. Just being friends. But no, a lot of people, their tendency is to be like, this person is faking it. This person is false. How dare this person take on this identity? And, you know, it's kind of like a Psych 101 comment. But often that does come deep down from a place of feeling like you yourself are not authentically that thing either. A lot of that does come from that sort of place where, like, you're seeing yourself in that person. That's like, that's Psych 101 101. That's not even Psych 101 stuff. That's Psych 101 101. They tell you about that in the class about the class. No, but it is one of those things where, you know, we tend to like look for that even in our own group. It's like I was saying about like growing up with a bunch of Asian immigrants and how there were some kids in that group in that community, because they were kind of a community who would give other kids shit about taking on too much of an American identity. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, in a similar way, it's like when you're into something, you're constantly looking for other people who are pretending. And you see that as a threat, you see them almost like a spy or something. And, and that's what I mean about these sort of primitive feelings we have when we see certain things. Like, even though there's really nothing wrong with taking on characteristics of a different culture. Like, you're not necessarily damaging them. You're not necessarily taking anything from them. And some cultures, it's a point of pride when something that belonged to them starts being used by someone else. It's an honor in some cultures. Not every culture, but in a lot of cultures, it's an honor. If somebody wants to take on your characteristics, your ritual, you know, there's that idea to it. Um, But we do tend to be sniffing people out all the time for one reason or another. And all this does come down to over-identification. And, uh, you know... uh, that's what happens when you distill things down to a word. 
Like, let's go with punk. Let's go with that. Where initially that described something that was quite varied. I'm no punk historian. I don't, I'm completely uninvested in the history of punk. But you can see where it meant something that was quite broad at one point and didn't have an exact uniform. Which is why when you see a lot of the things that were initially called punk in the 1970s, they don't necessarily look like what we consider stereotypical punk today. We don't necessarily see a a mohawk. You know, there's no real uniform. There's a certain style. There's a reason why things were associated with each other. But there's definitely not a uniform. There's definitely not a template. And I'm not even really a fan of these things. I'm not even a punk fan. But you can see where there was a lot of room for interpretation. Punk was something that you kind of had to see in a bigger sense. And then at some point, it became, so, it, it became distilled. It became an identity unto itself. Where it doesn't matter what ideas are in that. It becomes very superficial. It's basically a stylistic change. And that seems to be the big problem in all of this. It seems to be the big problem when we have new words that we like to use. When we start explaining concepts that actually have more pieces to them using just this one word, this one slogan, this one phrase. When we start doing that, we're distilling it down and making it easier to use. But in making it easier to use, we're losing a lot in the process, especially the more we use it. And so it becomes something that people can just superficially attach themselves to, that they can superficially use that they can misuse. And the same thing is true for over-identification because we distill things down. We take ideas, we take sets of ideas, we give them a label, and oftentimes that label involves some sort of identity that we can give ourselves. So now you have this new identity that comes from an idea that's been distilled into a buzzword. And you can now start calling yourself that. Oh, this set of beliefs, it, re- it represents conservatism. Oh, now you can start calling yourself a conservative. But meanwhile, the definition of conservative is constantly changing. The values of conservatism are constantly changing. Like, you don't hear conservatives today talk about seatbelt laws anymore. Whereas if you look at editorials, if you look at conservative or liber- libertarian editorials from decades ago... They're raging about seatbelt laws in the same way they're raging about whatever else they rage about today. You'll see where they're like, can you believe that the state introduced legislation that requires individuals to wear a seatbelt in their own vehicle? Otherwise, they will be ticketed. They will be pulled over and ticketed. That's outrageous to somebody who believes in individual freedom. The idea that you can legally force somebody to wear a safety belt in your own vehicle. The fact that you are forced to do that when it's your own safety. I mean, it's perfectly analogous to the mask law debate of the last year. Where at its core, it's about telling somebody else they have to do something for their own safety. But you don't hear conservatives talking about that. You don't hear conservatives today still dying on that hill. They gave it up. 
They gave up on seatbelt laws. You don't hear them saying anything about seatbelt laws. They've moved on to bathroom laws. They've moved on to this, you know, but they've lost the battle. So you can see where it's like conservatism doesn't have a fixed set of values and it shifts with everything else. But people are attached to the word conservative. You know, there are very few conservatives today who would openly say they don't support gay marriage. A lot of modern conservatives, a lot of pundits are now more likely to be like, and here we're going to interview a gay man who used to be a liberal and now he's a Republican. You know, they really enjoy having token gay men speak for them. Something that you wouldn't have seen 10 years ago. You certainly would not have seen that when George W. Bush was elected. You wouldn't have seen mainstream conservatives and Republicans being like, and now we're going to talk to a gay man who's voting for Judge W. You know, you just you didn't see that, whereas now it's fairly common. It might not be at the very center of the platform, but it's fairly common, and it's far less common to see conservatives say, yeah, I think it's time that we reversed the gay marriage laws that we passed. There are conservatives who believe that, but it's no longer their platform. So they've kind of shifted left as a whole. And you see that conservatism kind of does that. Conservatism is kind of always shifting a little bit to the left, but then trying to slow down that shift. They're basically like, I mean, I think this is a good way of seeing certain forms of conservatism at the very least, which is we're moving in a certain direction. So let's just slow that down a little bit. And that might be where I come from. That might be kind of the extent of my own conservative tendencies, at least the way they play out politically and socially. It's that I see an inevitable shift happening one way or another. Let's try to make it as gradual as possible so that we don't force it. Let's not just do something for the sake of doing it. So that kind of that's where my own natural conservatism comes in, where I kind of think, it's not that I think everything should just stay the same way it is forever because it never will. It's that let's do this a little more gradually and deliberately and less forcefully. So that tends to be where I come from. But I also come from a place where I'm not married to these placeholder words. Because if I am, if I am married to those words themselves... If in order to make my point, if in order to express my opinion, I have to use the word terrorist or I can't possibly express that opinion, that tells me something is wrong with my opinion. And if my opinion is based on me taking the word terrorist and using it against the people who I think overuse the word terrorist, well, I'm not expressing myself very well either. So I think a way out of that is just to describe the dang thing. Instead of worrying about who is using terrorist and how they're using it and fighting over that, I'd rather just describe the thing that I'm seeing. I'd rather describe the event or the behavior and just leave it at that. A guy went into a school and he shot it up and it appears he had some sort of ideology motivating his actions. That's good enough for me. If we want to debate how much that ideology played a role in what he did, that seems like a great 
use of our court system. That seems like something a jury can figure out. But I'm comfortable with the description. I'm not married to the word. I'm not married to any ism. I'm not married to the distilled versions of these ideas. I'll use them for convenience in the same way that sometimes I'll tell someone I'm an artist because it's a lot freaking easier than going on and on about, well, I do things where I, you know, I, I put pen on paper and I make shapes and, and I shade things and I put dots and texture and I'm not really sure what to call it. I'm not really sure what to call myself. I don't know what to call myself. You know, you end up like, that's your conversation. Whereas you can just sometimes distill it down and say, oh yeah, I'm an artist. I'm an illustrator. I'm a, I, I draw. Just say what you do. And so I think it's the same thing with these where, you know, sometimes there's a time and a place to use that distilled version. Sometimes there's a time and a place to just boil it all down. But when you boil it all down to one word or one slogan or a catchphrase or a buzzword, when you boil it all, when you boil it all down to that, You have to be sure that the other person understands what that word means to you. You have to be sure that there's a mutual understanding. Otherwise, you should make sure. Otherwise, maybe you should add a couple sentences that clarify exactly what you mean. Because people seem unwilling to do that. And some of it's just catching people at the right time. Because sometimes people want to read article after article. Sometimes people want to be these little sleuths who read every footnote and look at everything under a microscope. And sometimes people, you know, can't be pressed to read one word. And that again goes back to the mood thing. That again goes back to like your energy level. That again goes back to the idea that your opinion can fluctuate, your level of interest can fluctuate, your level of energy fluctuates. But the truth is, a lot of times you're just lucky if you can communicate your point at all. A lot of times you're just lucky if you catch someone at the exact moment that they're willing to listen to you go on and on to explain something that could be distilled with one word, but you're going on and on because you feel a strong need to actually explain what you mean because you think that everything's getting lost in this world where everything is distilled down, where everyone over-identifies where everyone is categorizing themselves and categorizing other people, you might want to go long form. You might want to elaborate, but you're lucky if the person you're talking to is even willing to hear more than a word or two. So that's what you're up against. But that's sort of the fun of it, too. That's sort of the fun of making an effort to be misunderstood. (laughs) Or rather, understood. (laughs) I didn't mean I didn't mean misunderstood. I was thinking so hard about being misunderstood that I misspoke. No, but it's you know when you make it a point to be understood, you actually do communicate better. But just like I was talking about how sometimes people deliberately pretend they don't understand where someone's coming from, like the sort of person who acts like they can't possibly understand why someone's emotional reaction to a shooting is to impose stricter gun laws. Like, you can understand that. You don't have to agree, but you can understand that. But part of it is that we ourselves make ourselves more difficult to understand. Like, sometimes that person who 
has a very natural reaction to a shooting and wants there to be gun laws, stricter gun laws in response, sometimes that person communicates in such a way about that that makes people just disagree with them on principle. I don't want you shaking a finger at me. I don't want anybody talking that way. You know, sometimes we make it more difficult ourselves. Sometimes we are the ones who make it difficult for other people to understand us. So, you know, all this stuff is a part of it. All this stuff is a part of it. And you just have to enjoy those moments when you're using the right amount of words to the right amount of person at the right time. And the result is that you actually hear each other. But in order to be misunderstood, you have to be constantly questioning when to boil things down into just a catchphrase and when to elaborate and actually explain all of the details about what you mean. There's a time and a place for both of those things, and that's the accordion effect. That's why you can't just keep the accordion all the way out or press it all the way in and keep it that way. I think language just requires you to continually pull that accordion in and out. And that's what makes language what it is. That's why we can enjoy individual words that capture something larger. But that's also why sometimes we have to actually try to describe that something larger using as many words as we can. We have to go in and out. Language has to be like an accordion in that way. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.